Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Oh, dear nice, but this is wondrous strange. And therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. But come, here as before, never, so help you mercy. How strange are odds, so ere I bear myself, as I perchance hereafter shall think meet to put an antic disposition on, that you, at such time seeing me, never shall with arms encumbered thus, or this head shake, or by pronouncing of some doubtful phrase, as well, well, we know, or we could, and if we would, or such ambiguous giving out to note that you know aught of me, there's not to do. So, grace and mercy at your most need. Help you swear! Hello and welcome to The Play's The Thing. You have joined us for Act Two of Hamlet. And that was... David Tennant playing the role of Hamlet, telling Horatio and friend that he is going to put on an antic disposition. This is the act in which Hamlet puts on that antic disposition. My name is Tim McIntosh. And I'm Heidi White. And I'm Andrew Kern. And we are so happy that you have joined us for act two of Hamlet. Heidi and Andrew, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Tim. It's good to be here. Thanks, Heidi. Thanks, Tim. Great to be here. Um, one up. It's good for me. It's great for Andrew. I like it. Oh yeah. It's great for me because I have better company than you guys have. <laughs> oh, yep. There you go. False, but nice. you guys were walking into maybe two of the most dense acts in the whole Shakespeare corpus. I think this week as dense as it is, is almost light fair compared to act three. So we need to prepare our audience. Act three is there is so much that happens in act three and act two is the setup for that. Um, so in, in the, the top of the show, the very beginning, act one, we kind of discover Hamlet has returned home to Denmark. 
His father is recently deceased. Uh, he's a little bit suspicious that his uncle, Claudius, who has married his mother, might have been, had something to do with Hamlet's father's death, but he's not quite sure. And then at the end of act one, we discover it's in fact true. Hamlet's father was killed by his brother, by Hamlet's uncle, Claudius. That's what the ghost says. And so we'll get into, you know, in act three, whether or not we believe the ghost and why Hamlet might not believe the ghost. Cause he sure seems to believe the ghost at the end of act one, doesn't he? I mean, he seems completely convinced, but later in act three, he's going to be a little bit suspicious that maybe the ghost was like lying to him or something like this. So that's one of the things we'll talk about in act three and we can put forward where we think Hamlet is. I want to start this act by talking about Ophelia. Ophelia, the doomed female heroine of Hamlet. It's oh, she's such a tragic figure. Um, at the top of this act, Ophelia comes in to her father, Polonius, and she gives a report about Hamlet. And I've got a question for you guys. My question is, do we think that what she is reporting about Hamlet is Hamlet acting antic, or do we believe that this is actually Hamlet kind of revealing his heart to Ophelia. So she reports at last a little shaking of mine arm and thrice his head thus waving up and down. He raised a sigh so piteous and profound as it did seem to shatter all his bulk. So Heidi, I, I want to ask you first, are we seeing through Ophelia's eyes the real Hamlet, the way that Hamlet actually feels about Ophelia, or is Hamlet already putting on a show to fool everyone, including his girlfriend? What, what do you think? Well, it, this is a complex question. And one of the reasons why Hamlet is such a masterpiece is there's embedded clues that would support either interpretation. And so, it's up to us as the reader or audience to interpret. I think that this is real. And there's a couple of reasons why I do. Number one is that there's nobody else there. Uh, so he's not, what I mean is he's not putting on a show for the entire, for, for people that would, that it would matter, see him put on a show. Like the king isn't there, Claudius isn't there, his mother isn't there. There's nobody to trick except Ophelia. Uh, and if he's just trying to trick Ophelia, uh, then, then, then we have, I think, a deeper problem within their relationship. Uh, he could be using her, that, the answer to that from the critics would be he could be using her as a pawn, knowing that she's going to report on him or suspecting she's going to report. And so using her as a witness against him um, to Polonius and thus to the king, because he knows that Polonius is going to spy on him which spying is a really big part of the show. Um, now, I think that it's real for a couple of reasons. Like I said, one, there's nobody else there. And that's a plot reason. Two, I think that it's real because of 
the conversation that Polonius just had with Reynaldo about Laertes, which is a throwaway scene, right? Like there's, there's, what's the point of that? What is the point of Polonius telling Ronaldo to go spy on Laertes? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So then that that's often cut or at least shortened in productions. But I think it's really important because it sets the tone for act two, which is everybody's spying on everybody. Everybody's watching everybody. Nobody can be trusted. Best friends can't be trusted. Girlfriends can't be trusted. Counselors can't be trusted. Everybody is in on this plot of watching each other um, in order to take Hamlet down and protect the king, right? And I I think that that scene is important because it tells us that there are spies everywhere, there's eyes everywhere. And I think it lends a lot of pathos to Hamlet's character and it puts so much pressure on Hamlet and Ophelia's relationship. It's no longer than a private relationship. They that that is just about two people falling in love, loving each other, moving towards marriage. Now it's just a pawn in the game of these mm. larger Machiavellian machinations that are mm-hmm. there to uh, uh, about this murder. And so I, I think it adds more pathos to the story. If his, if his feelings about Ophelia here are so complex that he is searching her face to find the truth. Mm-hmm. Does do you love me or are mm-hmm. you just another pawn being used against me? And so I even if there is a bit of his antic disposition here, I think it makes the story have more pathos and so I prefer to think of it as him truly searching her face in order to find her soul and to see if this woman really loves him and is going to stand by him uh, in, you know, in the midst of all of this turmoil. Yeah. I read it the same way. I read that this is his genuine self offstage testing Ophelia, revealing some of himself to Ophelia but he's going to discover, isn't he, that Ophelia is either in cahoots with the crown and is spying on him, or she has been kind of maneuvered like a pawn to spy on him at the beginning of the next act. Andrew, you said something last week that it's really important to remember everyone is watching everybody in the state of Denmark. I can't remember exactly the words that you said, but in in this play, everyone is spying on everybody else. And I think it's like we get a foretaste of that in what Heidi said. Laertes, the son of Polonius, brother of Ophelia, is leaving Denmark and his father sends someone to spy on him. Like, what's going on? He feels like he needs to spy on his son who's going, you know, out of town. And so we see in this act, everyone is watching everyone. Everyone's watching everyone. What do you make of that, Andrew? Is this a play about kind of like the power of the surveillance state? You think that's, is, is that what's going on here? Well, this is a play about everything. This is a play about everything, Tim. So, yeah, it's, therefore, it's <laughs> about the surveillance. Do you, do you think it's a major theme? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, well, when you say, is it about the surveillance state? 
um, that specific. Yes, it is. It's, it is. It is about this. It's a major theme that this is about the surveillance state. In fact, what happens when it's in Act Three, the beginning, right, where Rosencrantz and Guildenstern arrive, and the first thing that happens is they start spying. So people that Hamlet loves very much are watching him, and and so then he has to always decide how far do I trust this person and what do I do with this person? What kind of relationship do I have? So when you, when you asked Heidi about, about Ophelia, the way you put it was, is he acting antic or revealing his heart? And my response to that is yes. Both. <laughs> he, I, I, th I think we have, basically you could say that we have two options. He is, he is, he is mad or he's acting mad or well, let me rephrase that and say he's mad or he's super cunning. Mm -hmm. but what, right, 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 right. But what if he's what if he knows that he's a little bit mad and he's going to use that as part of the resources that that his cunning is going to control? So what in other words, what if he what if he knows that the pressure of his situation has begun to crack him? And so he's going to cover for that. And, and he's also going to use that as part of his his resources. Mm -hmm. I think that's very possible. And I think that when we look at his relationship with Ophelia, I love the way Heidi put it, that, that, that this puts pressure on their relationship, right? Because now it can't just be, well, one of you said, I think Tim said, do you love me or, am I, or are you just a pawn? Right. Those, it could be both of those two. It can no longer be a pure romantic relationship. Now it has to be a relationship between two people who are in a very, um, what's the word? Um, broken, fraught. Thank you. That's, that is the word. A very fraught context. Mm. And so they have to, they each independently have to figure out what kind of relationship are they going to have with the other. And they each have a whole pile of different um, punishments and rewards for either path. I, I could suggest, for example, that Ophelia loves Hamlet madly, but also is loyal to her dad mm. and doesn't want to be destroyed by the king. And, you know, you, there's all these different things that are crushing Ophelia and there's all these things crushing Hamlet and there's all these things crushing Polonius. Everybody is being crushed because there's no trust. So it's all about the surveillance state and its impact on the soul. I completely agree with that. And to add to that, along with the surveillance state on the public level, I think particularly with Ophelia and also with Gertrude, as you said, Andrew, this is a play about everything. And so it's also a play about women. And there's so much pressure on women in this, in this play and in the larger culture to do what the men tell them to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So Ophelia is just trying to be a good daughter and a good girlfriend and she can't be both. And 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 Gertrude, same kind of thing. Those who are sympathetic to Gertrude, which there's definitely multiple perspectives on Gertrude. Uh, but those who are sympathetic to her would say the same thing. Right. She was just trying to be a good queen. And now that the king is gone, she has to rely on a man. So there's there is this. You know, Shakespeare likes to write strong women. We see that all the time. Tim and I, we talk about that all the time in the other plays. That's not what we have in Hamlet. We have Ophelia, a woman who is not stronger than her situation. She's crushed by it. There's, she's in a pressure cooker and she caves to whatever man is there. And there's so much 
I think there's so much sadness and pathos in there. And she's not presented as villain, as villainous at all, but fragile, right? She's this flowery girl that's just these like petals being crushed everywhere she walks. And she's just, she doesn't know what to do. And and we see that in this act so clearly. I, my heart just goes out to her every single time. Um that I that I see or read this play in this particular scene when she is she's tattling on Hamlet she's reporting on him but there's no sense in the play that I see of malice in her but just kind of this yeah. like groping searching trying to find a place to stand and obeying her dad which she, yeah. she ought to do. which is she should do let's let's talk about her dad let's talk about Polonius. I've got a little audio that I want to play. Um, the audio is from a great old actor. Most people have probably forgotten about Hume Cronin, a wonderful comedic actor playing Polonius. And in this audio, he is going to reveal to the King and Queen, Claudius and Gertrude, his research about Hamlet's state of mind. Uh, let's listen to Hume Cronin as Polonius. My liege and madam, to expostulate what majesty should be, what duty is, why day is day, night night, and time is time, were nothing but to waste night, day, and time. Therefore, since brevity is the soul of wit, and tediousness the limbs and outward flourishes, I will be brief. Your noble son is mad. <laughs> Mad, call I it, for to define true madness, what is it but to be nothing else but mad? But let that More go. matter with less art. Madam, I swear I use no art at all. But he is mad, tis true. Tis true, tis pity, and pity tis, tis true. A foolish figure, but farewell it, for I will use no art. Mad, let us grant him then. And now remains that we find out the cause of this effect. Or rather say, the cause of this defect. For this effect, defective, comes by cause. Thus it remains, and the remainder thus. That was Hume Cronin from the 1964 production starring Richard Burton is Hamlet. Therefore, since brevity is the soul of wit and tediousness, the limbs and outward flourishes, I will be brief. Your noble son is mad. You guys, what do we do with Polonius? Because it's easy to read him just as kind of a clown figure. It just kind of, he's just not that intelligent. It'd be easy to read him that way. And it'd be very easy to read him as a company man, a bootlicker to the king and queen, which in some ways he very clearly is. But what's complicated about him is that in act one, we heard advice from him that to his son Laertes, as Laertes is kind of getting on the boat to leave. And I take his advice to be very wise advice. In fact, Andrew, if you don't mind, would you would you read us that advice that Polonius gives to Laertes on his way out? I'm happy to. In fact, you, you say it's wise advice. I, I agree with you. So wise do I think this is that when I took my daughter to college many, many years ago now, and I and I was dropping her off, I sat her down on the bench and recited this to her. So I, I do think there's a lot of wisdom in this. So here we go. I'm glad you did because some people read that because it's coming from the mouth of Polonius that somehow it's bad advice, it's unwise. And I think it's, it's great advice. So I'm glad we're on the same page about that. Go ahead. 
Well, when, I, when I'm done reading it, would you let me comment on what you just said about whether it's good advice from the mouth of Polonius? Because I think it's really key. All right. So he's, t- he's talking to Laertes who's boarding his ship. So who is supposed to be boarding the ship. So he starts out, yeah, here, Laertes, aboard, aboard for shame. The wind sits in the shoulder of your sail and you are stayed for. There, my blessing with thee. And these few precepts in thy memory, look thou character. Give thy thoughts no tongue, nor any unproportioned thought is act. Be thou familiar, but by no means vulgar. Those friends thou hast and their adoption tried, grapple them unto thy soul with hoops of steel. But do not dull thy palm with entertainment of each new hatched, unfledged courage. Beware of entrance to a quarrel. But being in, bear it that the opposed may beware of thee. Give every man thy ear, but few thy voice. Take each man's censure, but reserve thy judgment. Costly thy habit as thy purse can buy but not expressed in fancy, rich, not gaudy, for the apparel oft proclaims the man, and they in France of the best rank and station are of a most select and generous chief in that, sorry, and generous chief in that, neither a borrower nor a lender be, for loan oft loses both itself and friend, and borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry. This above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. Farewell, my blessing season this in thee. It's wonderful. It's a one, it's, it's great advice. It's great advice that, you know, sending a child to college, like remember these things. So, Especially when you're going to college, neither a borrower (laughs) (laughs) or a lender be. (laughs) So, Andrew, what do you what do you make of um, Polonius? What do you make of this advice? And what do you make of him broadly as a character? Broadly as a character, Polonius is is um, a failure. He he is a survivor and fails at that. Um, but he's been able to transition from one king to the next. So he's clearly not stupid. He's, he's clearly a shrewd man. But none of these words are his except possibly a comment he makes. Polonius is a student of rhetoric. And because Shakespeare's writing in Elizabethan England, he's a student of Elizabethan rhetoric. Right? So it's, it's you know, transferred back to Denmark. And one of the most important things you learn in Elizabethan rhetoric is, to, is what's called a commonplace. You, you have commonplaces. You, you find quotations and you memorize them. And you're supposed to always have them ready for an occasion. So none of these words, I would contend, are from Polonius's own mind. None of them are from his own soul. They're a collection of phrases that he picked up, a question of when Hamlet said earlier, I'm going to write this on my tablet. And then he says, I'm going to remove from the tablet everything except these words. Remember me. Right. What he's saying is all those things I had to memorize for school, they're gone now. 
I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting all of them. All the wisdom I collected, I'm forgetting it all now. Polonius is not. Polonius is holding on to his childhood education and then using it to give advice to his son. And it's good advice. And his son could make good use of it. But it's not from Polonius's soul. And the way I would summarize it is Polonius is a survivor politically, but he envisions himself to be a critic and an artist. Mm-hmm. And if you watch him mm-hmm. as an artist and a critic, you're going to see him stumble constantly. Like w- later on, we're going to see him interpret or make a judgment about some acting. Right. And he's wrong. Right. Right. That's a great, that, that really helps me understand Polonius, that he's, he's parroting something these commonplace phrases, he's parroting them to his son, but he doesn't seem to actually know the way that they are because he, in some ways, he violates his own advice. What he's really good at is remembering things and putting them into an occasion, right? It fits the occasion. He's shrewd, but he doesn't internalize. Yeah. The, the meanings of the, of the Proverbs don't sink into his soul and transform him. He's, he just uses them. He's classically educated and he uses it to, to try to dominate or to survive. That's a great, that's a really helpful for me perspective on, on Polonius. And you're right, he's shrewd. He's really shrewd. He would not be in the position that he's in if he were not capable of ingratiating himself to the powers that be. The fact that he's survived into this new regime is evidence that he is shrewd. Which suggests he may have been involved in the transition between regimes. Do you mean the murder of Hamlet's father? Yes. Conceivably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm not, I'm I mean, not. I think that's one of the questions. Sorry, Heidi, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that that's one of the questions of the play is how much was Polonius involved? Um, I also think that Polonius, if you look at it from a meta level, it look at his character, and especially, particularly in this act, we have Polonius as... as an inversion of Hamlet. So Hamlet is a man who is, who does have wisdom, discretion, subtlety. He has a depth of soul, not yet a greatness of soul. I think that's the question of the play. Uh, but he, he has the capacity to be a truly great man. And yet he covers that up with an antic disposition. Mm-hmm. What we have with Polonius is the opposite. We have a small-souled person who covers that up with a perceived wisdom, right? He takes on then a wisdom that he doesn't have uh, to cover up the smallness of his soul, whereas Hamlet has potentially a great soul and puts on madness and folly as a cover-up to that. And the contrast of that, I think, is one of the threads of Act Two that that ties it together. And another reason why I think that Polonius's conversation with Reynaldo and many of his other conversations that feel like, where in the heck does that come from? Why is this here? So much of Polonius's character is about being an inversion of what Hamlet's going mm. through. Mm. I love the way you put that. The, the, um, the echo of... of- Hamlet's first talk comes up, seems, madam. Mm-hmm. I know not seems. And I know not seems. All about seeming, right? He's everything. Yeah, that's right. Everything about him is seeming. It's putting mm-hmm. on something that he isn't. And Hamlet's doing the same thing. He is now, isn't he? So he does yeah. not seem. Yeah. But he's been forced to seem. Maybe it's okay to seem in some occasions. Sure. I think, again, to your point, that, that 
that Shakespeare gives us throughout the play, Shakespeare gives us these interpretive choices that feel like dichotomies, right? Is Hamlet mad or is he sane, right? And just as you said earlier, Andrew, which I think is so insightful, the answer to that is yes, right? They're actually false dichotomies. The question of is Polonius a fool or is he a manipulator? It feels like a dichotomy. It feels like you have to make an interpretive choice. But the answer is yes, he's both. He is both a fool and a scoffer, to use the biblical language, right? Um, and, uh, and, and so I think with Hamlet, that, that yes, he's both. He's both mad and he's, a manipulate, he's manipulating the circumstances. He's, he's truly sane. Is he actually just the most sane out of all of us? And we're the ones who are mad, right? Like, like is, is it Hamlet acting or is it just the world acting and Hamlet's the only one doing who's, who's actually living in truth, right? That, so I, I think that so much of this play is Shakespeare. Uh, he's, he's, he's playing with us a bit. Like he's giving us these interpretive choices and the answer to them is yes. <laughs> I, I want to propose a hypothesis. I'm just going to put this out as something to reflect on as we go along, if you guys want. What if the theme of Hamlet or the condition of Hamlet, let's say, is that human beings are far too complex to make judgments about them? Amen. I, I feel like I should probably pause because maybe that's just... <laughs> You know, now I'm like wheels within wheels, but um, <laughs> I think that's totally right. I think that what Hamlet, you know, we, we're going to pick a lane, right? And one of the things that Shakespeare is saying is you don't have to pick a lane, right? You could drive on the line. And there's, um, there's so much to all of these characters. And the more that I, every time I read the play, you know, the First time I read the play, I thought that this was, I thought it was about this, right? I thought it was about X. Then the next time I read the play or watch the play, I think, oh, it's X or Y, right? Mm -hmm. And now that it's like, it's X and Y. And then it's like, I don't, there's no numbers. There's no X's and Y's. It's just really complex and hard to be human. It's meta. <laughs> it's so meta. <laughs> anyway, Tim, what are your thoughts on Polonius and all of this? I agree with your with both of your assessments of Polonius. I also see him as um, he's the first enemy that must be overcome in Hamlet's journey. Like Claudius is the big dragon that's waiting for him in the cave and Hamlet is going to get closer and closer and closer. But I think it's fun to see Hamlet matching wits with someone who's clearly an inferior Polonius. Um, and this is the kind of his first obstacle that he has to overcome. And in some way he overcomes, he overcomes him kind of by just brushing him to the side. Now later he won't just brush him to the side, but he'll run him through, albeit he doesn't know exactly who Polon who the man is behind the tapestry when he runs him through. But um, for now, he deals with Polonius just because Hamlet is a superior intellect and a superior soul. And um, yeah, he's ready to, he, he dispatches him with relative ease. Andrew. Well, when you said superior or inferior intellect, well, I think what you said was Hamlet is a superior intellect and a superior soul. And because my mind works this way, as soon as you said that, I started to argue about it. Um, I'm going to suggest the possibility, not the dogma again, but the possibility that maybe Claudius is Hamlet's equal as an intellect. 
but that is his inferior. Polonius or Claudius? Thank you. Thank you. Polonius. Mm -hmm. Maybe Polonius is Hamlet's equal as an intellect, but he's inferior as a soul. And what I mean by that is if these two started out at the same point intellectually, went to the same school, got the same education and graduated together, you know, both summa cum laude, right? From that moment forward, Polonius would have been living a life of self-deception and that would have prevented him from perceiving reality well. And that would have enabled him to succeed within the narrow confines of his life as long as they didn't change too much, right? But Hamlet, meanwhile, if he's got a larger soul, then he's accepting and embracing reality as it is, not forcing it into his own mind. And he continues to expand his own soul into the reality of the world he lives in. So he becomes adaptable. He becomes receptive. He becomes able to, to some extent at least, able to maneuver in circumstances he's never seen before. And thus it might not be, this is my whole point, I think, it might not be an intellectual issue, an educational issue, however you want to put that, but a soul issue. That, 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 that Polonius got his education, specialized in leadership, and is done. Now he's just going to perform it. But he's not adaptable because of that. Whereas, whereas Hamlet is, is embracing all of reality to the limit of his capacity. They both die, right? So it's not that one's necessarily better in that sense. But maybe one of them is a better way of being, regardless of whether you die. I'm off again. That's my that's a hypothesis. I'm not contending right. for it, but I don't think Polonius is is dumb by any means. He is a smart, clever. He is man. He is well educated. Okay, let me let me see if this analogy works. Let's say that. Um, I'm, forgive me. I'm going to stretch an analogy, maybe to the point of breaking. It's to the point cool. of breaking. Then we'll dispatch with it. But what if? Um, both Polonius and Hamlet are ocean liners. Their yeah. souls are what moves them. It's the engine behind them. The intellect is the rudder. The intellect points them in the direction they ought to go, right? I would say, and I think I hear you saying the same thing, Andrew. Both of them have, um, <laughs> their rudders are excellent, functional, capable of precise movement. It's the engine that's the problem. Mm. It's the engine in, in Polonius that's the problem. Um, I don't think that his soul, kind of like the generator of action and his pursuit of goodness, I don't think that it is as functionally powerful as Hamlet's is. And thus, it has an effect on his rudder. His rudder mm-hmm. cannot shift him and move him with the precision that Hamlet does because he just does not have the capacity for momentum toward goodness that Hamlet does. Yeah, I love it. And and just to play with it a little, let's take away the engine and put in the wind and the sails. Sure, yeah. And then the spirit, which is, you know, the Greek word for spirit is the same as the word for wind. So then, so the spirit that's blowing them is very different. And, and then so that the intellect might be the um, intention. Well, the intentions are where are we going, but we can only get there with the wind. But th- then the intellect is taking care of the ship, right? So, so, so in that sense, both of them have the capacity to polish the brass really well on the ship. Okay, both of them have the capacity to make everybody on the ship do the right thing, right? Mm-hmm. But, but the wind is blowing differently, mm-hmm. and the sails get beat up, 
And so, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just playing too. I'm also making my metaphor walk on all fours. <laughs> I've never heard that phrase before. making your metaphor walk on all fours. Yeah. And then, you know, making it do too much work. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, either one of those I think is, is really, is really helpful. Well, met- metaphors are always helpful, but the, um, as long as you let them be what they are, but the, the, uh, the whole idea of, of, of soul and mind having an interactive relationship. And, and I think if one suffers, even if the other is in, so if, um, the rigging on Polonius's ship, his soul, his capacity to kind of like be moved by the spirit moved with mm-hmm. the wind, I like if that. that is beginning to disintegrate. Yes. And Hamlet's is not, then it has an effect upon the intellect. It has an effect on the rudder. Huh. And so the rudder for Polonius is not as capable because this other, because his soul is in disrepair. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, sorry, to, but you're making more thoughts trigger here. But the break, the, the tearing of the sails, right? Polonius was so obsessed with, a specific function that he, he was a specialist, right? He was going to, he was going to succeed in this technical realm and he was going to apply his education entirely and totally to that. So he only bothered learning one sale, let's say he only really mastered one sale and that puts extreme limitations on his ship. And then that one sail starts tearing up in the wind. He doesn't, he doesn't tend it because he doesn't know how he only learned how to sail with that sail, not how to take care of it. Whereas Hamlet, we hope has most of his sails working and he's taking care of his sails, right? And, and all of that. So his soul has more capacity. His spirit can travel broader seas and doesn't as easily get stuck in right. the doldrums and all that kind of thing. And so, yeah, he can then, he can move around Polonius relatively easily. And he doesn't seem to have a difficult time battling Polonius. Right, right. Yeah, but I, I, I think he d- dispatches him pretty, pretty quickly. Say again, Andrew, sorry. No, forgive me, but I, I think it's his soul that separates him, not his intellect. I agree. I completely agree. And I said earlier, his intellect, I I don't want to, I don't think that the battle between Polonius and Hamlet is chiefly one of intellect. There's certainly word play. Mm -hmm. And I think that that Hamlet gets the better of him in that regard. But I don't think this is primarily a battle of intellect. I think it's, it's chiefly a battle of soul. Right. And, and even there, forgive me again, I, I hate to do this, but you, this excites me. When the wordplay that Polonius gets involved in, he thinks is a battle of wordplay. Okay. So, so that's his limit is I'm going to outduel him verbally. Meanwhile, Hamlet is recognizing that words serve a higher function. And so he, he doesn't particularly worry about whether he gets outdueled verbally and thereby he does win the verbal battle because he recognizes that words are, are ordered to something higher, to intentions and so on. And Hamlet is just so bigger, the way Heidi put it, he has such a bigger soul than Polonius has. And that was Polonius's choice. He chose over and over and over again to be a small-souled man, right? And, and so, so he, he's in a certain sense more to be judged than a modern child who doesn't even have the option of having a big soul. His education is to be small-souled. Right. And for the most part in our culture, because we don't believe in the soul. Why would you cultivate a soul if you don't believe in it? Mm. They did. And Polonius just said, what the heck? I don't care. I want to survive. So the Aristotelian virtue of greatness of soul is, you know, 
according to Aristotle, there's the golden mean, right? Which is the, the mean between two extremes. So greatness of soul is a person who, so somebody who is great of soul is a person who has an inner capacity for greatness, believes themselves capable of filling their soul with great things, and then actually goes out and does it. I like that. So the... The, the extremes of that, a small-souled person is a person who is capable of great things, but doesn't believe themselves to be and never does anything great, which in my opinion is the saddest fate of a human being. I cannot think of a worse fate. Um, on the opposite on the opposite extreme is a person who believes themselves to be capable of something greater than they are and then acts like it. So Polonius, mm. right? That's Polonius. That, that is, uh, uh, Aristotle calls it arrogance, but that's not a perfect, that's only the English translation. Um, and I don't, I don't read Greek, but my understanding is that that isn't quite the right word. But, you know, we're always kind of in translation. That's what we're right. trying to do. It's um, kind of trying to find the best possible word. I don't remember what it is. It's megalo something. But oh. um, so the but the idea of that is that what we want to be is a person who is cap who is capable of great things, believes themselves to be, and actually goes out and does that. Which I think what when I talk to my students about greatness of soul, when I teach ethics every year, we talk about is that compatible with Christian belief, right? Is that and and is that compatible with the idea of the Imago Day? And I think it is. It can be redeemed by that. Mm. And I think one of the questions of this play is it's clear that Hamlet has an an incredible intellect and a strong moral compass, right? And and so I think the question of this play is kind of always him on this on, on this continue on this Aristotelian continuum of of either giving up on the project of avenging his father and having a small soul, right? Or going the other way and saying, I can't be bothered with that. I should be the king, right? Which we really actually don't see that temptation in Hamlet ever of just like, I ought to be the king. Let me just get rid of Claudius so that I can be, right? We don't see him tempted to that, but we do have Polonius as a character in the play who I think represents that other end of the of the continuum of, of, of this Aristotelian vice of arrogance, right? He actually never fills his soul with anything substantive, with any kind of moral weight or uh, questions of sh uh, should questions, what we use at Circe, right? Like, ought I to do this? Is this goodness? Like he doesn't, he's not concerned about that. He is just concerned with the way he seems to others looking good and his position of power, which is unparalleled in the court. Polonius has more power than anybody. He's not an idiot, right? Other than Claudius, he's the guy. Um, and he actually has some pretty good ideas. Sending his girl, sending his daughter as Hamlet's girlfriend to go spy on Hamlet. Pretty good idea. diabolical plan. <laughs> so to dismiss him as merely a comic character is a mistake. Um Polonius is more than that, as both of you have been saying, uh, and and he the reason that he fails is not because he's dumb, although he he can't match wits with Hamlet, um, but he's he's morally bankrupt because he's a utilitarian. 
He's yes. about survival. He's about he's about um, staying close to the powers that be. And yeah, and he succeeds. He's good at it. Yeah, till he doesn't. So, so to Tim's question earlier, is he a bootlicker? Is he blah blah blah? Like, yes, he is. He is all of those things. He is also yes, manipulative, mm-hmm. power hungry, right? Um, and it's and all of those things are even compounded by the fact that he can't match wits with Hamlet and is easily overpowered in a battle of in a verbal in the verbal sparring match um, because there's no actual capacity for true judgment in him so of course when he's watching a play he can't make a true judgment because actually the play although a bit that the players present although a bit melodramatic is I mean, it's about Troy. There's there's some real substance to that. And he can't judge that. That's actually quite a tragedy, mm. right? But he can't see something that has that much depth of grief and loss and love. Like he can't he can't even take it in and 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 put in a true judgment on something of that kind of weight. He takes a qualitative activity and gives a quantitative measure. It's again, that's well said. I, it's modern too. There's an impliability, isn't there, to his assessments of things, not just with the play, but what is the cause of Hamlet's madness? It's my daughter. He's stuck on my daughter, you know, Um, when it's like something I can control and use. Exactly. Exactly. And, And when he's presented with alternative, when he's presented with evidences that maybe it's something to do, maybe it's bigger than my daughter. Maybe it's not just that Hamlet is love struck with my daughter. He can't see that. There's an impliability to his, uh, to his judgment that confines him. I agree completely. And also one more thing to add to that before you say, also he's willing to toy with his daughter. Like think about that. He's destroying his daughter's happiness in order to spy. It's, it's a, it, it's an evil thing to do. It's an evil thing to do. When he, Heidi, after uh, Hamlet and Ophelia's scene together in act three, I, I'll want you to comment on this. There's something that happens. And if you're not watching a stage production of it, it you can easily miss it. But after Ophelia is spied on by her father and the king, the, her father, and it, it, when she's with Hamlet, her father and the king kind of rush on stage after Hamlet exits. And Ophelia is still on the stage and these two guys are having this conversation about what just happened, about what just transpired. And they're kind of like saying, hey, this is what happened and this is what happened and this is what happened. Ophelia gets no comment on what just happened. She's, she was like, She was like the primary player in the scene. And she gets no comment on what happens. And to see her kind of like singly standing out on stage, independent of the review of the scene that was just acted out, I think is a really powerful scene. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. After um, Polonius makes his exit, and by the way, his exit and Hamlet's reply are just like wonderful. Uh, Polonius, my honorable Lord, I will most humbly take my leave of you. Hamlet? You cannot, sir, take from me anything I more willingly part with all. 
it's a great little exit. Um, soon afterwards comes the next couple spies, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Now, the background of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, these are two presumably lifelong friends of Hamlet's. They show up. Hamlet by seems that he's really pleased to see them. And I think he genuinely is pleased to see them. But at some point, Hamlet starts wondering, hey, what are you guys doing here? What's going on here? You just drop by for a visit? I don't know if the text tells us exactly where Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are from, but it, it's not the sort of situation they, they're neighbors and they can just kind of swing by, you know, in their Prius because they would drive Priuses, I think. Um, so Hamlet, they would totally drive Priuses. Wouldn't they? Like, and now I'm never going to see them any other way. I just <laughs> like, what else could they drive? I'm having the best time picture, like one in an Oxford shirt. I'm having, this is, I'm having a great time right now. Thank you for saying that. Couldn't they drive a Nissan Leaf? They could, but I think that the distance they would need to cover, the last I heard, the Leaf has got kind of like a limited range. <laughs> and so I think that's part of the reason why they couldn't drive the Nissan Leaf. Right now, Nissan is arming itself for a lawsuit against the plays, the thing, our podcast for maligning the ability of their vehicle. And probably, you know, the manufacturers of Priuses are Priai are also back to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, when Hamlet starts to press them on why they're there, uh, you know, they kind of him and haw. But I noticed something, um, w- actually, when I was performing this, what they're really curious about is Hamlet's ambition. That's what they kind of keep coming back to. Denmark is too small for your ambition, my lord, or is kind of like the message that they're giving. Um, Andrew, any notion of why ambition would be a word that they're, you know, uh, something that they're wanting to find out about Mm. Hamlet. Do you have ambition, Hamlet? Surely you have ambition, Hamlet. We've seen your ambition, Hamlet. Why is this a concern for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? What a good question. Well, so I suppose the straight answer is because they've been appointed by the king to see what's up with Hamlet and the king's concern would be whether he's going to be overthrown by him. Um, also, just psychologically, Hamlet is supposed to be the king now. Mm-hmm. And so they might be trying to dig into, you know, do you intend to take the throne that is rightly yours? Mm. I think if, if there's a, point about context that might even string this back to our earlier discussion. Um, The second and third line that the king says at the beginning of scene two, well, the first line is, welcome, dear Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And then he says, moreover, that we did much long to see you, the need we have to use you Mm -hmm. did provoke our hasty sending. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we don't know where they're from, but we know they were sent for and that it was done hastily so that the king can come right out and say to them, look, I'm glad to see you, but you're here so I can use you. You've got a task. 
And and that's that's an echo to me of Heidi's comment earlier about um, well about the whole discussion of Polonius because I made the the hypothetical suggestion before that the theme of Hamlet is that people are too complex to make judgments and I, I modified that in my head people are too complex to make final judgments okay but Polonius he's always simplifying people to their utility. He, he really, even to his daughter, his knowledge of that person is, is interpreted by their utility. And now, now the king is doing that too. The king knows people. What he knows about people is what their utility reveals to him about them, right? And so, so when they go, when Rosencrantz and Guildenstern go to Hamlet, their friendship is being swallowed up in their bootlicking if you want to use that term and their and their utility to the king and their their ambition so maybe it's projection but their desire to to stay close to the king to be to be rewarded to to make their contribution to denmark right and so so the um the question of ambition which i hadn't thought about the way you just put that question so thank you but the question of ambition has a number of different entry points like there's just an appropriate ambition. <clears throat> it would be perfectly fitting if Hamlet aspired to be the king, because that's his responsibility. And what they need to figure out is, is he ambitious? But then they also need to figure out, is he willing to be used by the king? And they are, right? They're willing to reduce themselves to being useful to the king. And that's, that's the problem again with pragmatism and, Utility, it leads to surveillance states because, because it's ultimate. The ultimate thing you can do is be used or use someone else. And if, if Hamlet's a hero, I might suggest it's because he will absolutely not think about others that way, although he asks you sometimes. He won't reduce them to that, and he won't reduce himself to somebody to be simply used. I am having a revelation based on Ooh, Tim's what's, question. What's your revelation, what you Heidi? <laughs> so this is so helpful to me in understanding even Claudius and the question of ambition because he sends Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to spy on Hamlet because he is afraid that Hamlet is doing what he did, mm. right? Which is to conspire against a ruling monarch to overthrow him and take the throne. That's what Claudius did. And he took the throne from his own brother, took his wife, and then is keeping the rightful heir in check as best as he can. Mm. Right. And so he is judging Hamlet by his own standard of wickedness. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, again, we come to the question of seams and seeming. Right. In Claudius's mind, he can only see Hamlet based on his own projection of, of his own wickedness out there, right, into the world. Hamlet must be doing what I did. So I'm going to send these people to spy on him, and then they're going to ask him all these questions of his about his ambition, which Hamlet is rightly not only not only parries really well with his antic disposition, but he seems honestly like a little bewildered because that's never in Hamlet's mind. So we have both Polonius and Claudius. As you said, I really like what you said to use the quest narrative motif to kind of as if Hamlet is the knight on a quest, Claudius is the final enemy, right? He's the last right. level of the video game. <laughs> like, so 
Uh, but along the way, he has to overcome these lesser challenges like Polonius. Right. That's a that's a good that I think that that works for, as as an archetypal kind of overlay onto Hamlet. Um, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are in some sense like. Next level, level one. Up. Yeah. I think they're level one. They're, I mean, they're there with their avocado toast and their pour over coffee and getting out of their Prius. <laughs> so they are not worthy opponents and Hamlet is onto them right away. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, but I, I'm really, the revelation that I'm having is how much Hamlet transcends just by virtue of his ability to actually love his father. Mm. He's already, I mean, he's already won all of these battles, right? Like um, in some way he does have the capacity for greatness within him. And so much of our interpretive, so much of, of us as, as virtue seeking people, when we read something like Hamlet over and over again and really dwell within it and let it work on our souls, the question we eventually get to, I think, um, is does he ever d- does he ever truly become great of soul? Hmm. Right. Like, hmm. And I think in Act Two we see multiple the spying and the watching and the underhanded kind of way that his enemies are approaching him. Nothing's above board, um, and either they're either dangers or temptations like Odysseus, right? Along his journey home, Odysseus has to encounter various dangers, the monsters or temptations, the goddesses, the women, right? And um, and and Hamlet in some ways is doing the same thing. What we are seeing in act two is kind of this building progression of the multiple obstacles he's going to have to overcome in order to figure out how to truly love his father. Is vengeance the way to love his father or is forgiveness and mercy the way to love his father? Is avoidance the way to love his father? And, and that's a really complicated question that we'll get to in the second half of the play. Does he ever actually do that? But right now in act two, we're seeing, you know, he does he really love Ophelia? Is this relationship really, is she a worthy, is she worthy? Is he worthy of her? Is she worthy of him? Do they truly love each other? Can the pressure on their relationship be withstood by them? Or is it doomed from the start? Can he overcome Polonius's machinations and foolishness and scoffing? Can he, can he uh, figure out what to do with his friends or his so-called friends who are now watching him? And then behind the curtain is, Polon- is Claudius trying to pull the strings and trying to protect Claudius, trying to protect himself from a danger that he isn't even facing Hamlet's not trying to take the throne I, I I think I think it I think it's worth at least considering that he might be because because he is supposed to right he he he, he believes he's a, he lives in a hierarchical realm mm-hmm. and so he do, he would consider it an abdication if he didn't Right. Well, and it's not a wicked thing for him to do to take yeah. the throne. He ought to be there. That that is the order of the world as it should be. And so when he says the time is out of joint, oh curse it's spite that ever I was born to set it right, part of setting it right would mean that he does, whether he wants to or not, have to become the king. It strikes me though, I'm also having a revelation here, although it's much more trivial than Heidi's. But Tim, you are um clearly a um the wind in our sails or the light in our souls or something. The wind beneath our wings. Mm-hmm. I can't handle it. <laughs> but, 
the quest, the quest metaphor, and then the question of ambition. I don't know how exactly, but it, it suddenly dawned on me that we're also reading crime fiction. Totally. The story is crime yes. fiction. Yeah. And, and this, the thing about crime fiction, as I've come to be a little familiar with it, is that it's always based on the interpretation of signs. Crime fiction is always a grammar study. And by grammar, I mean interpretation of signs. And so, so what we've got here is continual stream of messages, signs, mm. coded behavior, sometimes written things. And it's always about interpreting. How do I interpret that? Everybody now in this paranoid environment, this super complex environment, has to figure out how to interpret everything that's happening to them. Meanwhile, not only does Hamlet have to solve the crime, but while he's doing that, he has to act. So he's not a Sherlock Holmes with pure intellect sitting there looking at everything and going, oh, I can just dwell on this. It's not me that's at risk. He's got to solve a crime that's been committed against him and mm-hmm. that puts his very life at risk. Mm-hmm. So it's fascinating to me that while being spied on, while he's being doing spied detective on. work, while he's being watched, while he's being detected, yeah, yeah while he's being detected, yeah, everybody's. But and, and Claudia, somebody said earlier, I think it was Heidi talked about Claudia's pulling the strings of everything that's going on, and my my again hypothesis would be that there's there's two puppet masters, there's two suns in this solar system, and they're each fighting for the planets. And Claudius is one and Hamlet's the other. But so then each of them has no choice. Well, Claudius has a choice. Hamlet has no choice but to control and, and, and evaluate and use the behavior of other people. Mm-hmm. Right. And that makes it morally deeply complex because is it ever appropriate to use people for, for ends? And it's the glib answer is, yeah, that's, that's always wrong. Well, Tell me how we live then. Tell me how we get things done. Right? Am I allowed as the C- Thank you. Am I allowed as a CEO to to use people's efforts to to build the company? You know. Yes, that's your literal job. <laughs> what choice do I? And right. it's a disturbing thought. That way of putting it is disturbing that I'm mm-hmm. using people, and yet don't we pray, Lord, use me. It's different if it's God. I don't grant. I mean, I grant you that. But anyway, so I, I, I'll I'll just stop there because I don't know where to take that thought. Take that because it's and everything's complex. But yeah, because that's it's a play about everything, right? So that's I think it's it is to your point. It is a play to dwell in, mm. right? You can't. It's like a cathedral. You walk in and you're absorbed by it. And we wanted, you know, we take, I've taken like a million cathedral tours on travel, right? And so, like, the tour guide is like, over here, we have this shrine to a saint. And over here is the altar. Over here are the flying buttresses. And you kind of walk through and check, check, check. There's the, there's the thing, right? The, the thing is the parts. Polonius is your tour guide. So, maybe so. <laughs> um, and in order to build, <laughs> to your point, in order to build a cathedral, you have to build parts. Like you have to use the stones and you and you you build it with using parts. But it's far more than the than the parts. And um and I think the three of us have dwelled in this play really, really often. Um and so I now as I like walk through it again with the two of you, I am so overcome 
by the fact that it's more than the sum of its parts, but by the fact that it is a place built for like a cathedral to contemplate transcendence, you know, um, and to be moved by it. Um, And I I think that in this act, in act two, we see so many of these, you know, act two is almost like the tour, right? Here we have Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Here we have Polonius. Mm -hmm. Here we have Ophelia. Here we have Claudius and Gertrude. And here we have Hamlet. And boy, is he acting crazy, right? But, But it's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. And and I, I like the fact that in this conversation, we're kind of dwelling in it. But for those of you who are new to Hamlet, it's okay to just kind of look, know that there's more, that know that those parts are interacting to create an experience with transcendence. Um, but as you walk through this act, that there is a sense of Shakespeare showing us, right? Here's Hamlet and here are the obstacles. And also he doesn't yet even know what he ought to do. He does not yet. It isn't even that he has to go in and kill the dragon, right? That's what he's been told. As you pointed out at the, at the top of the show, Andrew, he was told to go kill his uncle and avenge his father. But still we don't know, like, was that a ghost? Was it a demon? If, if, and Hamlet is, he's a Christian, he's, he's a Christian. And so, and not only is he a Christian, but at the time he would have been Roman Catholic, right? So there would have been this question of murder as a mortal sin. So can it be that he has to murder somebody? Like, so there's, there's this meaning also of pagan ideology and Christian tradition that's taking place within the play. Um, and that's haunting act two as well. Last week, we talked a little bit about the possibility that, like Shakespeare's other great dramas, there's sort of two plots happening at once. One of the plots we've talked about a lot, uh, it's a revenge story. And it's a revenge story that's happening within the, the prison of Denmark, a surveillance state. But I wonder if there is another plot happening so just to take our readers back to Richard II, Richard II is this story, the single, the, the, the plot is about Richard II being overthrown by Bolingbroke. There's another kind of higher plot that's happening at the same time, which is everyone is debating what happens if you depose a king who has been chosen by God. This is the time of the divine right of kings. And there's this sense that Richard II was put on the throne, not just by England, but by God himself. And what happens if a really bad, what happens when a really bad king is deposed? Does this mean that, you know, like he wasn't divinely appointed by God? Does this mean that we are violating the divine right of God to put someone on the throne? So that's my question about Hamlet. We, ha- we, we know what the plot's about. It's a revenge story in which Hamlet has been commissioned by his father to depose the wrongful king, King Claudius. But there seems so much more going on in this play. And that's my question for you guys right now. Is there a higher plot? And if there, there is a higher plot, could you, could you tell us what you think it is? What do you mean by a higher plot, Tim? Just what I described, there's, is there a, a preoccupation among the characters with some question, be it theological, mm-hmm. philosophical, literary, 
that is that that kind of needs to be resolved in Richard the second the the I think that Heidi and I kind of made the submission that there's a preoccupation among the other characters in Richard the second like is it okay for us to do away with a king, even if he's a bad king who's been divinely appointed? So is there a higher question in this play that the questions are kind of ruminating about beyond just should Hamlet try to get the throne back? Should, should Claudius be deposed? Should Hamlet be put down? Those are kind of like the first level plot questions I'm asking about those second level plot questions. What are, what are people preoccupied about? And I ask it and I actually, let, let me do this. I actually think there's a little bit of, I'm going to argue, yes, there is a higher plot. And I think we get a real signal of it when Hamlet speaks to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and kind of tells them, Mandelite's not me. I've, I've, I've lately lost all my worth and wherefore I know not. I want to play, uh, Mel Gibson's movie version of this, I think it's it's exceptional, in which Mel Gibson is telling Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, yeah, this is, this is how I feel. Let's listen. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of exercises. And indeed, it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth... Seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you. This brave or hanging firmament. This majestical roof fretted with golden fire. Why it appeareth nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. Peace of work is a man. How noble in reason. How infinite in faculties. In form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world. The paragon of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. That was Mel Gibson as Hamlet. What a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty. Yet man delights not me. Andrew, I take this speech to be kind of one of the real interpretive moments in the play. I think he's being candid with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. I, you think this is kind of one of the real interpretive moments of the play and maybe has a bearing on this kind of upper plot that we're trying to tease out. When you hear this, what do you, what do you, what do you think, Andrew? I agree with you. I, I think it's a key phrasing in the, in the play. And so the question you had just asked before you played it was something like this is, is there some higher plot? Is there some, I took it to be, is there some higher question that's driving everybody? Right. Right. And, and well, Hamlet says the question is to be or not to be. And maybe this is a development of that question because he doesn't, 
he, he, he makes assertions here, but notice he, he doesn't only talk about man. He talks about, he talks about the earth as a goodly frame. He acknowledges mm-hmm. it's a goodly frame, but to me, it seems a sterile, a prom- sterile promontory. He talks about the air as an excellent canopy. Look, you, this brave or hanging firmament, you know, brave, of course, being that imaginative or beautiful thing, this brave or hanging firmament, this majestical roof. Look, he, he really is praising these things, mm-hmm. fretted with gold and fire, which, by the way, is echoed in, in uh, Claudius's response. His, his statement, his question about Claudius's response to the play in Act 3, watch, that, watch for that, that, the echoing of fretted with gold and fire. Okay. Why it appeareth, it appeareth nothing to me, but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. And then he says, what a piece of work is a man. And he, he praises him, noble and so on. In apprehension, how like a God, he's the beauty of the world and the paragon of animals, as you all just heard. And yet to me, what is his quintessence of dust? So he's not denying the greatness of these things, but he is saying to me, this world is rotten and man is rotten. Denmark is rotten. <laughs> and to, it, it would seem to me that what Hamlet is having to ask throughout the whole experience is, given how complex humans are, given how uncertain the situation is, given how unstable my whole world is right now, And then given the fact that it goes beyond my experience, but it goes into thought and soul and being itself. Is there anything that makes sense? Mm. Is there, is there anything that makes sense of the world? And is there anything that makes sense of man's place in the world? And that's that as soon as you put it that way, it just sounds like a trivial academic point, but that's what we're always asking. Is there something that that is there some key that we can sing in that makes this symphony a symphony or is it in fact just chaos is it in fact just a power battle is it just a battle for power does anything make make sense of this world and if so how do we find it and if so how how do we live in light of it given the chaos given the uncertainty given the complexity because let's face it, guys, none of us even begins to understand life. And that's why Hamlet is such an important play is because he forces you to admit that. Mm-hmm. He forces you to admit that you don't really know what you're talking about, that you have collected a bunch of proverbs and you're using them to show other people how clever you are and to try to live day to day. Right? You found your 12 rules for life or whatever it happens to be. But we don't know what we're talking about. So how do we live in light of that? And how do we, how do we make sense of it? To your point, Andrew, I really love that. I, I do think that the overarching preoccupation of the play is epistemological. And that sounds really insufferably academic, but, and, and let me Not explain to, no, that. No, I don't think it does, Heidi. Yeah. Um, I, so to, well, it is right. Because this is why I, this is why Shakespeare didn't write an essay. He wrote a story because you can't, if I say to you, my main problem in life is that I neither know what to know nor how to know it and then how to act upon it. 
whatever I know, right? And if I say that to you, now I've started a conversation about epistemology, right? And you may give me your opinion about that or your thoughts on that, or you may try to set me straight or make me feel better, right? However, if I say to you, my dad died a month ago, my mom remarried the guy who murdered him. And then a ghost came to me and told me to kill that guy. And also he's the king and I am the heir to the throne. What do I do? Mm-hmm. Like now, now we're actually talking about what do I know? How do I know it? And how do I act on what I know? Right. Mm-hmm. So, because, mm-hmm. and now, now not as that question, that question's no longer abstract, but it's embodied in my life. And now you have an opportunity to speak into that, but I don't know if I'm going to take your advice because you know why? I don't know what I know. I don't know how to know how to know it. And I don't know how to act on it. So you might give me advice. It might be really good advice, but I'm probably not going to take it because I don't know what I know. I don't know how to know it. And I don't know how to act on it. Yeah. And that's what Shakespeare's doing in Hamlet. And and to your point about this speech, which is, by the way, in prose, which is interesting to me. Um, and uh, because almost all of the great metaphysical speeches in Shakespeare are in poetry. And when they're in, in prose is almost always used by Shakespeare in the lower plot with the lower characters. And, mm. but in this particular speech, the quint- quintessence of dust speech, which I think is one of the most beautiful phrases in English history <laughs> um, is this is in prose. That's interesting to me, mm. but even to, to move beyond that, the next thing that happens is absolutely I think a mic drop moment in Shakespeare and nobody ever talks about it. And it is this Hamlet gives this amazing speech about quest about the nature of man. And then the next thing that happens is that Rosencrantz laughs at him mm-hmm. and, and Hamlet mm-hmm. says, why are you laughing at me? Right. I am just bared my soul or has he question mark. Right. And then Rosencrantz says, oh, hey, if man not delights not you, then, oh, you're going to be really sad to hear that this, that the players are coming. Right. So the, tra- the so Rosencrantz comfort for Hamlet is there's going to be some people acting. Right. So again, we come to the question of seeming, right? Mm. The question of, of the play, the play within the play, the play is the thing, right? And, and that's the transition. Hamlet tells him this very deep and meaningful question that frankly, everybody is asking or avoiding, right? You're either asking this question honestly, or you're avoiding this question, right? <laughs> of, of meaning in life and what is the nature of man and what am I doing here and all this stuff. Um, and, uh, and that's not an abstract question. It's an embodied question for each of us. What do I do about my life? Andrew, you're asking that question about your life. Tim, you're asking that question about your life. And so is everybody who's listening to this. You're either asking it honestly or you're avoiding it and sublimating it. Um, and, and then the answer to that from Rosencrantz is, oh, guess what? We're going to get a bunch of people here acting, which is the, the entire, that, that's what this is. It's in play. There's, everybody's acting. Everybody's literally acting. And then everybody's metaphorically acting. And then now we have some actors within the acting. So all of it's just an objective correlative. 
That's why it's so important that Hamlet wastes more time teaching the actors how to act, even though they're the professionals and he's just the college boy, right? He gives really great advice about art to the actors. In fact, I wrote a, a, a little booklet years ago called Hamlet's Guide to Storytelling, where I just take his approach and here's how you can create your own little stories. It's, it seems out of the blue again, but if everybody's always acting, then art isn't only an ornament, it's important. It's, it's, it's a question of learning how to speak this speech appropriately. I think there's something happening also in um, Shakespeare's time. I think that he is addressing in his, in his kind of like roundabout way. So I think that what Hamlet is experiencing is a genuine epistemic crisis. So just like Heidi said, epistemology is that branch of philosophy that deals with how we know what we know. Hamlet has returned home to the death of his father. He is no longer, he is out of place to be the heir of his father. His father has been replaced on the throne by his brother. His brother has married Hamlet's mother. Any one of these things would be a crisis enough to make him ask, what is my place in the world? Where do I belong? I mean, if anyone who's gone through the loss of a job that maybe they thought was going to be their career, for the rest of their life, anyone who has gone through a divorce or found a spouse cheating, you have a kind of constellation that we all build around ourselves that we think, this is how I think my life is going to go. And when it doesn't go that way, it does not just affect the immediate relations that you're in. It's not does not just affect how am I economically going to pay my bills? How am I going to pay my mortgage when I lose my job? It can have an effect that it shakes everything around you, everything around you. I think that's what's happening in this speech. I think that Hamlet has been so shook, so shook that the relation, all of the, re- the dense relational tissue of his life now seems to be breaking apart so much so that actually the very structure, the firmament, the structure of the firmament itself is beginning to shake. Now, in England, I would say that something very similar is happening kind of like socially in England at this same time. Almost all of the structures that are within England, be they political, religious, geographic, scientific, all of them being, all of them are beginning to kind of shake a little bit. So the Ptolemaic view of the universe is now beginning to be questioned by Copernicus and Galileo. This is hard to like reimagine. If you think, think that the universe is swinging around the planet that you're on and a couple of scientists come forward and they say, actually, it sure looks like we're one system that's swinging around this great ball of gas. It's that alone is jarring. Okay. The religious substructure of England for the past 1000 years is also under threat, right? Um, The kind of Catholic um, canopy that was, that stretched over Western Europe 
Now that is coming under threat by the Lutherans, by um, the change to an Anglican order under Henry VIII. So everything that you thought about the kind of religious, you know, like picture of the world, that's also coming under threat. At the same time, there are all these stories coming back from across the ocean about Mm. North America, about Mm. South America. And what's most jarring perhaps about that is not that there are other countries, people or other continents that was presumed, but the civilizations that they are, that they are finding on North America and South America are in some ways thriving civilizations. So the sense that we are part of a civilization that is really kind of like we've climbed out of kind of like these pagan superstitions. Well, a lot of these civilizations that are being found, these are really advanced, really um, sophisticated collections of human beings that have organized themselves in really different ways than the way that England and Europe had organized itself. So all of these things I think are in the background of the English mind, the English patrons who are going to see this play and I think that part of what's happening, kind of the, the upper story, is that Hamlet has experienced this relational tear, this relational breakdown, and now it is spilling over. And he is in some way articulating, maybe this is what England is feeling like in 1600. Maybe this is what it feels like to be kind of like a little bit lost in the cosmos that we thought was our home. And now we're not sure that it's our home anymore or not. We're, we're not sure that we have like kind of like a unique place in the universe or not. Mandalite's not me. I think that's part of what the upper story in Hamlet is about. And I think we get like little samplings here and there, here and there, suggesting that um, Hamlet is is no longer feeling at home, not just in Denmark, but kind of in the universe broadly. Um, you guys, we we need to put a pin on this. We're not done with this conversation about what the upper story is. We're going to revisit it during Act 3, Act 4, Act 5. Um, I want to leave us with a little bit of the monologue from the close of Act 2 which was my favorite monologue to perform. It's so much fun. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I, in which you're going to hear Hamlet be frustrated with himself that he cannot summon himself to action, unlike this actor who doesn't even have a cause for action, yet he's able to summon tears and violence in his face, even though he doesn't really have a call, yet Hamlet himself, commissioned by his father to seek revenge, can't seem to act. So let's listen to Hamlet after the player king gives uh, a monologue in which he kind of rends his clothes and sheds tears. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her working all his visage wand tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit, and all for nothing. 
for Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him? Or he to Hecuba, that he should weep for her. What would he do had he the motive and cue for passion that I have? He would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear with horrid speech. Make mad the guilty and appall the free. Confound the ignorant and amaze, indeed, the very faculties of eyes and ears. Yet I, a dull and muddy-metalled rascal, peak like John of Dreams. Unpregnant of my cause and can say nothing, no? Not for a king upon whose property and most dear life a damned defeat was made. Am I a coward? Who calls me villain? Breaks my pate across, tweaks me by the nose, gives me the lie in the throat as deep as to the lungs. Who does me this? Sure, I should take it, for it cannot be, but I am pigeon-livered and lack gall to make oppression bitter. Or ere this, I should have fatted all the region kites with this slave's awful, bloody, bawdy villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain. Ah, oh, vengeance! Why, what an ass am I? This is most brave that I, the son of a dear father murdered, must like a whore unpack my heart with words and fall a cursing like a very drab, a stallion, fie upon it, fie about my brains. I have heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play have by the very cunning of the scene been so struck to the soul that suddenly they have proclaimed their malfactions. I'll have these players play something like the murder of my father before my uncle. I'll observe his looks. I'll tent him to the quick. If he but blench, I know my course. The spirit that I have seen may be the devil. And the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Yeah. And perhaps out of my melancholy and my weakness, as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. I'll have grounds more relative than this. The play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. What a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable.
admirable In action how like an angel In apprehension how like a god The beauty of the world The paragon of animals Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hi this is Kristen, and this is jen from my mom so hard and we're here to talk about by heart do you remember when you were nursing and you were like i want to give the best thing i can to my baby well we've got that for you it's called by heart and it is a infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Curious about Byheart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with code MOMS20 for a limited time. Additional terms and conditions apply. Tell them my mom so hard sent you. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you 